I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. What Drives You is brought to you by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping life and leadership coaches. Visit Ziggler.com and let them inspire your true coaching performance. Yeah. This is What Drives You. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. Thanks for joining me again as I talk with today's most influential change makers to uncover what truly drives them and extract the big takeaways from their insights so you can integrate that wisdom and leverage the power of your unique inner drive and wake every day to your authentic, driven, and inspired life. In this episode, we are kicking off a series on belief. Uh, you've heard me talk often as of late about what, I, what I've grown to believe are really the dangers of our individual and cultural beliefs. We all want to know what is and what is not and be able to count on it. That's human nature. But the more I've learned in my lifetime, the more of my past beliefs I no longer believe. So I just assume then that many of my current beliefs, I may also change as I continue to learn more. So then what are the value of our beliefs and how much trust do we put in them? That's a controversial topic and we want to believe our beliefs are truth and fact, but they're not. If you can't accept that, either run from this episode or take a deep breath and open yourself up to some freedom, I hope. And our guide for this series is Dan Ariely. Dan is an Israel-American professor and author. He serves as a James B. Duke professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University. Dan is the co-founder of several companies uh, implementing insights from behavioral science. And his latest book, and our muse for this conversation, is called Misbelief. What makes rational people believe irrational things? I love the title, love the tagline. Dan, thanks so much for being here. Lovely, lovely to be here. And I am I'm going to ponder after our conversation about what, uh, what drives me. Uh, let's <laughs> see if I can get some insights. Yes, well, me too. It's, uh, it evolves probably as much or, or more as our beliefs, which we're going to talk about here. And Dan, I really wanted to hit it off the top of belief. I mean, we all have a concept of what we think belief is. I looked it up uh, to see what, the, what, what Google Dictionary says, at least, an acceptance that a statement is true or that something exists, trust, faith, or confidence in something or someone. And that right there, I feel like that's a, that's a, that's a tension right there. When we look at belief, we want to say belief. I believe this because it's true. And yet right there in the dictionary, it also says eh, it's also faith. 
we, we don't hold those very well, do we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. So, uh, so it is true um, that that there are lots of things that we think that we have gotten to by reason. Yes, that our beliefs are <laughs> a world reason. Uh, but when we talk about it seriously and we're open, we we realize that that it's not that there are many things that we um, we believe just just because. And um, there's a there's a sentence that I I love using, which is, "What would it take to change your mind?" Hmm. Now, if you don't take it seriously, it, it doesn't really work. But if you say, "Look," Let me take some of my deepest beliefs, mm-hmm. uh, my beliefs about what is the right way to raise kids and what is the right way to be a romantic partner mm-hmm. and what is the right way for a country to treat its citizens and its enemies. And, you know, just think about any of those big topics and then say, what would it take to change your mind? And when when people do that, they recognize for some things that the answer is nothing. And and now that means we're not really in a evidence-based belief. We're in a religion or right. you know some faith-based uh, beliefs. And then if there are some beliefs that you say, oh, I can see where I would change it if, if I got this evidence. Now the question is, do you do you really want to go and get that evidence and find out? Uh, that you might be that you might be wrong. So um, the the way that we got our beliefs is is very strange. A lot of it came from our parents and education and so on. But but we don't see that, right? When when you ask people, I'll, I'll give you something like very very simple example. You go and you ask people, um, why are you saving in your four hundred one k the percentage that you're currently saving in your four hundred one k? And people tell you lots of stories. Oh, you know, I thought about it carefully and so on. When you look at it, it's really about the default choice on the form when they first got to that, to that job. Mm-hmm. But there's, a, there's what really influenced their decision and there's the story that we tell ourselves about how we arrived at it. And, and the real reasons and, and the stories are often very different. You know, in psychology, there's this very ancient question. Uh, do we run because we're afraid or we're afraid because we run? So imagine you're at the edge of the jungle. Right. And you see something moving in the bushes. And you don't know what it is and you start running. Were you afraid first and that propelled the running? Or was it a direct activation of the running and the fear was something you told yourself after the fact? Almost like a label. Uh-huh. Say, oh, this is a frightening place. Let's not go back back here. And of course, like many psychological um, processes, the answer is a bit of both. Right. But, but some of it is that behavior comes first and then, and then beliefs follow. That's, that's interesting. And, and even your question, what would it take to change my mind I think one of the things that's always, not always, as of late, as I said in the intro, that's concerned me for myself and for the culture is if you ask me, you know, what what do I believe that I don't want to believe? 
because most of my beliefs, I realize I want to believe them. Yes. I believe them because I want to believe them. I want them to be true. And if I step back away from that, do I really believe that it is true and right and you know, all the things we put behind that? I I don't know. The, the admission is I, I so much want it to be true. Even when you talk about religion, there's things that I have chosen to believe. And I got to admit, I want to. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> yeah. I'm in the same boat. Yeah. So, you know, this this book that we'll, we'll talk about came from a lot of attacks on me from yeah. uh, people who thought I was uh, evil and wanting to kill people and so on. And it's been tough. It's been, um, you know, three years with lots of death threats and lots of hate. Uh, even now, we are more than uh, three years after it started. And two weeks ago, my university got a, a death threat that they had to turn to the authorities because it was so, it was uh, extra. You know, it, it's, it's slowing down, but it's still um, very extreme. And uh, I'm, I'm Jewish, and in, in Judaism, we have a day of atonement. Uh, mm-hmm. Once a year, we have the day, a day of fast, and it's supposed to be a day to reflect on life. And every year, I, I pick a topic that I want to, to reflect on. And, and this year, it was about whether I think that human nature is inherently good or inherently bad. Okay. And, and my, my working assumption has always been that uh, human nature is inherently good, that there are some mistakes along the way, right? It's not that everybody is good and there are circumstances and drives and there's confusion, there's mistakes, there's evil forces. But, but I thought that people are inherently good and then sometimes things get messy along, along the way. And the last few years have been tough. <laughs> it's been tough to to do this. And and I basically kind of said, you know, should I revise my my opinion about about human nature? And my conclusion was a little bit like yours. I said, you know what? I've too much evidence that there's darkness in human nature, darkness that I did not see um, you know, five years ago. Yeah. But I'm not yet ready to accept it. Hmm. And part of it was to say, you know, I, I look at my role in life as getting up in the morning and try to make improvements. Right. Where would I find my motivation? Where, where is the motivation if, if I don't think so? So, so I think I, I had the same experience as you have to say, yes, you know, I think it's time to update my belief about the goodness and badness of human nature. But... But I need it. I need it for my motivation. I need it for my energy to to wake up in the morning and feel that there is that the world can be better. You know, I, as a as a social scientist, I look at the world and I say where we are and where I think we could have been. And I think about all those gaps. We could be healthier and we're not. Uh, we could be wealthier and we're not. We could have less hate and all of those things. I look at the gaps between where we are and where I think we could be, and I say, how can I help that? And, but that builds on the assumption that everybody wants to, or almost everybody wants to live in a higher equilibria with, with a right. better outcomes for all. So anyway, I, this, this for me was a very, very strong experience of spending the whole day on it, kind of test, tasting the conclusion that I need to update my beliefs, mm-hmm. but saying, 
I don't want to. <laughs> Maybe next year. But I'm not, I'm not ready for it yet. I need, I need another year of motivation at least. Well, I, well, first, gosh, there's so much in there to unpack. I mean, there's, there's, some hum, there's a lot of humility, I feel like, in that, that you did that. I would say confidence and humility. Confidence enough to be able to set it out and go, all right, I'm going to test this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to poke at this. And, and you're confident enough to do that and humble enough to do that. Because, I mean, you talk about evidence. And so that's what we do. We go out here, we look for as much evidence as we can. And you know, even to that degree, I struggle with that because we're usually getting evidence at secondhand, thirdhand, fifthhand. None of us are, are, we're rarely ever on the front lines of the actual research, the actual environment, the actual issue. So we're taking this and then that, and you use that word conclusion, and that's what we do. And that's what, I almost want to say frightens me now, Dan, because I, I want, I do, I, I'm, again, I want that. I want a conclusion. Can I just know what's right or wrong, best or not, uh, you know, black and white? Can I know that as opposed to, all right, this is the best that I figured out today. And so today, based on that, I'm going to make this decision. Now, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to consider it again and then make another decision. But that's, that makes it takes so much more effort than just going. You know what? No, it's just black and white. I don't have to think about it again. Yeah. You know, I I often tell my students uh, I don't ascribe that consistency is a good attribute. Okay. Well, I, I, I basically say, look, I can change my mind. It's perfectly fine. Just because I said something like you know, just because I I had a different opinion two weeks ago doesn't mean that that was correct one. I I don't 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 say oh but two weeks ago no, I'm sorry if two weeks ago I said something else I'm really sorry but but the important thing is what we believe and not not to try and be uh, be consistent. And that but that's a big that's a big issue though Dan because that's when we take that and if you believe this today or if you do this today if you decide this today then I and I'm gonna take an exaggerated approach, but I expect you to do that tomorrow. If you don't, then I'm going to say you're wishy-washy, you're flaky, and at the far side, or not the far side, but at the critical side, that you're you're hypocritical because you did this, you said this, and now you're not. And we don't want to be in that place. We want to be consistent. We, we trust okay. that, don't we? 16 years ago, you said this on Twitter. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so I think, I think that's one thing. By the way, there's another interesting psychological mechanism which is that if we act in a certain direction, as we said before, that could reinforce our beliefs, mm-hmm. right? So if I, let's, let's take something simple, that yesterday I chose a red wine over white wine. Yeah. That choice reinforced a little bit that my preference is red wine over white wine. When I'll come tomorrow to, to think about a glass of wine, I'll say, what did I pick last time? Oh, I picked red. Let me pick red again. So... So consistency is, is a very strong driver, not just to explain to other people, but it's a very useful shortcut for ourselves. Where you ask yourself, again, we talked about beliefs, right? We ask yourself, what do you really believe? It's very tiring to ask every time from scratch. Right. So what right. do we say? We say, what did I do last time? Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, I'm going to have a romantic evening with my significant other. What is the best thing to do? Well, that's really tough. And so what did we do last night? Let's, let's just repeat. Uh, let's, just repeat um, let's just repeat that. So, so consistency is, is something that makes us feel as if we have solid preferences, even though it can be built on something like, 
<laughs> you made one wrong decision and then you kept on uh, following in your own yeah. footsteps. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to take about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to a hundred times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and Air Doctor is just the best. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. Uh, following in your own yeah. footsteps. Well, you said a couple of words that, again, I think are such a big deal, preferences. So specifically, if you didn't just happenstance decide one day, I'm going to have some wine and I think I'll pick the red. And it was just no bias, no whatever. You said, ah, I think I'll do that. And then you come back the next time and go, well, I did it last time. I'll do it. I'll do it next time. Even more so than if you said, no, I actually prefer red wine. And then even further, if you give me an opinion and say, well, I actually do because I, I think it's healthier for you. I think it actually is 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 a more pure wine to be red. Well, well now even, even harder for you to change because I did this I did this, uh, Dan, on specifically coffee. So I love coffee. I've always had coffee. And one of my best friends, he loves tea. And I pretty much just criticized him for liking tea. And so it tastes like dishwater. And then the day came when I decided I wanted to take a break from coffee and I wanted something. Tea's the next best thing. And so I did it there. And now I really like tea. (laughs) 
Well, okay, but I had a, not only a preference, I had stayed an opinion and I had gone way too far and even gotten judgmental with it. Maybe in jest, but still I did. So now to change it, oh, now you like, after all those years of advocating coffee and saying it was the best, now you're going to drink tea. Yeah. You hypocrite or are you flake or you what? Yeah. So I, I feel that we're jo- you're joking about it, but it gets to the root of our, our self-identity, doesn't it? Um, very much, very much. And it's very confusing. But let me tell you about the craziest experiment. Tell me. You ready? Yep. So uh, my hand is very burned, so it looks it looks strange, but that's that's what it is. So imagine I, I show you two cards uh-huh. with two faces of two women. And I say, which one do you find more attractive? Right. And you point to this one. And now I put my hands on the table with the cards. I pull them toward me and back and I show you this card again. But what you don't know is that behind each of the card was the opposite card. Mm-hmm. And when I pulled my hands back and forward, uh, I dropped the top card. Mm-hmm. So in fact, what I did was I switched the cards. Right. So this was like, I show you this and this was face A and this was face B. I put it on the table, I pull it toward me, I drop A and B, and now I have B and A. And now I show you card B, mm-hmm. the one you didn't pick. And I say, why did you say this was the most attractive one? Mm-hmm. Now, you can't do it 100% of the time because people at some point from time to time catch. But if you do some of those real trials in the middle of lots of ordinary trials where you don't have the double card tricks what do you think is the percentage of people who notices that the cards were switched very very small and how many people tell stories about Mm -hmm. why they chose the one that they didn't choose Mm -hmm. basically everybody so you just made the choice to prefer this one over this one (laughs) I show you the one you didn't choose I tell you but I you think it's the one you chose it's the action yeah and then you say, oh, I chose that one. Maybe it's because uh, she has more beautiful eyes or I like the hair color or something like that. So that's an example that our reasons for choice often come after the choice mm-hmm. and it's not an input mm-hmm. to the choice, right? We think, oh, you know, I have all these preferences and therefore I choose. No, many choices we just make and then we make a beautiful story. Like mm-hmm. in the same in the same way that we say, how did you decide to, um, how did you decide to uh, invest this amount of money? And you say, oh, you know, it was deliberate decision. I really thought about it. Right. Or or here's another crazy example. And when people meet each other, uh, they often shake hands, and then almost everybody, when it's a new person. In the next five minutes, people raise their hand to their nose and smell the other person. Really? Now, you don't think you've done it. I didn't think I've done it. But you look at the videos, we do it. Now, it's not a conscious effort. Now, now I'm going to be self-conscious of shaking hands <laughs> right. the rest of my life, Dan. That's right. But, but look, we all know that smell is an incredibly important predictor of sexual attraction. Uh, but it's also a good predictor of friendship. You know, it's one of those. Now, 
when when you I ask you like you know from your best friends why did you choose your best friends you're not going to say oh they are, <laughs> they smell That's, good to me right <laughs> but you know the brain the brain by the way smell conveys uh, genetic information and genetic fit smell is a very very complex mechanism it, it tells us a lot but not in a conscious way it doesn't go through our cortex it doesn't go through the system that we designed to think it just goes directly to our uh, to the brain parts that that analyzes smell and it drives behavior yeah. but completely unaware we're completely not aware of that so we <laughs> you know we end up we end up having a preference for people mm-hmm. and we can't articulate it and then we make up stories about why it is but the stories because we make them they're becoming more tangible like mm-hmm. I can't tell you how my friends smell right now. When, when, you know, when you smell somebody, you can say what the smell is, but after the fact, it's fleeting, it's gone. The stories stay. So our stories about our preferences are often um, more informative about our future choices than our real preferences. I, I, it, you get me to, again, questioning why I... I want to say we, but I'll own it. Why I have such a need for belief, for a set of beliefs. And I'm prone to, and you you, you tell me if I'm tracking, that it's a basic survival mechanism. I want security. I want safety and I want to survive. And I can do that best by knowing if I'm on a desert island, I want to know where the red ants are that are going to kill me. I want to know where the poisonous snakes are. I want to know where the swamp is. I want to know where I believe I am safe and and where I believe there's danger and then act accordingly. So it feels like, okay, that's basic. But if I look at me now out in humanity where I'm not, I mean, most people aren't. Now I know you're in a, in a dangerous place right now, but most of us listening to this show are not in danger. And we are not in survival mode. We have the privilege of evolving beyond that. And, and we should be able to step back and go, gosh, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I believing what I'm believing? And can I have the confidence to question that somewhat? But, I, but I'm back here going, why is it that I wake up and my, my human nature just wants to know? Again, black and white, right or wrong, I want to believe. And I, and I thought, it's just self-protection. But if I put it in that light and say, okay, most of my beliefs are made up around my own protection, that should give me the what the permission to go, well, so maybe they're not truth and fact. Maybe they're worth questioning because maybe I'm missing out. Maybe I'm imprisoning myself. Yes. So 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 let's let's take the extreme example from the book of of misbelievers. Mm-hmm. So so in, in the first part of the book, I describe my own adventures and, you know, the attacks on me, we can, we can skip them for now. Well, well can, can I, I just, can I just insert real quick there that everybody listening, so could, that hasn't read your, maybe they haven't read your book yet. And he, and he does talk about some beliefs that were, he was accused of, blamed, whatever, but let's go with accused. Everybody out there at some point in life has been accused of something. They know that they know that they know that they either one didn't do or maybe they did the thing, but they did it and they know they did it for the right reasons. And so they yeah. felt wrongly accused. So everybody put yourself in that seat. Okay, now go go ahead. Yeah, it's actually what, what you just said is exactly right. That it's when people have all kinds of strange opinions, the earth is flat, whatever, yeah. 
we can we can say okay some people are wrong but when people say kevin you uh, had a terrible fight in the street yesterday and you punched a woman that's terrible and you say no i i was home the whole day i wasn't out and and you can't convince them. That's that's the incredible things, and that's that's what got me to go down this adventure. Yeah, or, or I did punch that lady, but it's because she yeah. was she was literally beating to death an infant, and so I saved the infant. I did. Yeah. yeah. Either way, I'm not. Yeah. And let's. I mean, I mean, somebody could edit this. Of I, I know. I know. I'm so sorry. Well, there I'm at risk. Okay. Um. <laughs> um. So. So it all started with terrible set of accusations and and um, you know very very tough period and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of chapter one of the book. But the next part of the book and the biggest part is basically describing the psychological machinery that takes us and gets us to start believing all kinds of things that are not healthy for us and and society and mis misbeliefs. And and I break it into four components: emotion, stress. Mm-hmm. Cognitive, personality, and social. And what what you're talking about right now, which is the need for a story, uh, basically is a complement of stress. So okay. uh, consider the following. Two tribes of fishermen. One is fishing in the deep sea. One is fishing in the lake. Mm-hmm. Which one has a more predictable environment? Lake. The lake, the, the ocean is much more hectic, storms, weather, fish move to different places. Which one of those tribes would develop more superstitions? Hmm. The deep sea. Yeah. The deep sea. Why? Mystery they, and certainty. And yeah. They, that's right. It's like, how do you get the energy to wake up every day and go fishing when you don't know what will happen? Yeah. If you have a belief that you can control it in some way, that really helps. So- so the breeding ground for misbeliefs is really stress. Hmm. If you have a group of people that are just happy as clams, uh, well-paid, loved, appreciated, and so on, those people would not start believing all kinds of strange things. The moment people start believing the world is just really strange. I don't understand what's going on here. Why am I not getting my share? Why did this person get promoted and not me? Why did I get fired? Why did my significant other get sick? The moment people started feeling this way, we have a tendency to look for a story. By the way, it's, it's another illustration of this. Uh, sometimes we give people paintings of what we call white noise. So white okay. noise, we all know, like, shh, full mm-hmm. spectrum. But when you talk about the picture, it's just a picture with random black and white dots. So imagine a picture filled with that. And I show it to you and I say, do you see any pattern? And you say, yes, no, what do you see? Here's another one, here's another one. What do you think happens when people get more stressed? Yeah, they have to find a pattern. They see more patterns. Yeah. And by the way, it, it works for emotional stress. Like I say, you know what, Kevin, I, I looked at your life and it looks like you're very unlikely to have friends. If you get divorced, you'll, if you'll get married, you'll probably get divorced. Like it, it could be, I could create stress, emotional stress about your future. Um, it works on people who um, parachute. As they get closer to jumping, they see. So, so, so stress basically gets us to want to understand the world, right? And, and, and by the way, not all stories are created equal. 
So you could say, why not just believe in a, in a good God? Like, that would be great, right? Everybody, uh, well, <laughs> there are exceptions. <laughs> but, but anyway, but, but why, why believe in a villain? So when there's something bad happens, like when, when you just want to go fishing, you can say, okay, I'll pray to God or, or something. But when you have to explain something terrible that happened to you, you want to find a villain. It can't be God. It can't be an all-merciful entity. Something bad happened. So you're looking for a villain. That helps deflect blame. It's not me. It's them. And as the story gets complex, two things happened. One is you feel more in control. Yeah. Oh, you regular people. You think it's just, let me tell you, I understand something else. And also for the people who uh, supply these misbeliefs, they have more details to give, right? If we just had a very simple story, like it couldn't be news. But if we story about me and Bill Gates and the cabal, like you can just imagine every day we could feed the beast and add more, more information. So, so we, we need stories um, because we don't want to re-examine the world all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need the story, stories extra when we're stressed. And the stories that we want when we feel hard done by are complex stories with villains. And, and I call this the funnel of misbelief because I also want to convey the feeling that as people move forward in this funnel, it's harder and harder to get them back. So maybe the first point is stress leading to some, uh, you know, belief of something, but then still way back. But if you let that continue, it'll be very, very hard to get people back. If you get the cognitive process going on and the social process going on, it'll be very hard to get people to to come back. You know, it's interesting as you say that, Dan, because it makes me think of elderly people. So older people that I have, and this isn't, I have, I have not done the research necessarily, but just through life experience, I would say I tend to see people as they are older, get more resolute in their beliefs, more certain, convicted, concrete, or far less. And now you make me think of what was their life like? What was their stress level did they feel secure? Did they feel safe? Or did they feel threatened if they felt, because I hadn't, obviously that's why you wrote the book, but if they feel threatened, if they had lots of stress and that continued on, it would make sense that they are more and more have a death grip as they reach their deathbed on those beliefs and convictions. Whereas you find those others over here, which I'm going to say is where I, I would tend to say we feel wisdom and in those folks who are willing to ponder and consider and not hold so tightly to their beliefs, which is interesting because I, you got me thinking about wisdom as I read the book. And is wisdom, I think if we were to ask people on the street randomly, what is wisdom? Oh, it's knowing the right answers. And I think, gosh, I, my experience again is that the people I find myself pursuing more and more for wisdom are not the ones who give the answers. If anything, they may just ask better questions. Yeah, if I if I had to, um, okay, this is this is unbelievably arrogant, but you know, if we think about Buddhism and kind of what is a high level of attainment, I think a high level of attainment is enjoying 
not knowing. Yes. So the ability. So I think being feel that I like being feel that I have to know the answer and it's all black and white and I need to know it. I need to know it now, and I can't go back and visit it. Is is one low, one version. Another version is to say I don't have to decide now. I can wait. It's okay. I need. I can figure it out. And a, a higher level is to say I'm really going to enjoy the process of not knowing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to soak in it. I'm going to revel in it. Um. By the way, I uh, I go once a year. I go with two of my friends for a month long hike, and uh, we talk. Uh, we don't talk that much throughout the year, but during that month we we talk a lot. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things that happen when you walk and talk with people, happens to me at least, is that it feels okay to revisit some topics. Mm-hmm. You know, if you and I sat for, for coffee or for a glass of beer, you know, it would be very strange to say, you know, we just finished talking about this for 15 minutes, but I want to bring it up again mm-hmm. and, and rehash it again. You would say, no, 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 we, we covered that. It's, it's you know, let's let's move on. But... When you walk and you walk for a long time, it's perfectly fine to bring to bring topics uh, back, and that I think helps a lot. This feeling of you know I'm still not sure about it, and I want to use the process of talking aloud and thinking, and getting your feedback, and it can be different feedback, and it doesn't have to be the same, and it's uh, it's unbelievably uh, un- unbelievably fulfilling. Uh, this. Um, this process. So, so I think I think if we if we talked about um, uh, wisdom, that would be my uh, my my version of this. My my version of this. I so, I think about that as an as an evolution. I mean, do I just figure everything out at some point and it's set and solid? I don't think about it again, or do I evolve? I'm not in survival anymore. Hopefully, do I evolve and I can embrace because I, I think of the mystery, the not knowing, the, the mystery and the uncertainty. And uh, you know, I, I won't go down that rabbit hole, but in my own deconstruction of my childhood religion, in essence, at first it was very disconcerting. I didn't, I didn't know, I had no firm ground. You know, even as I looked at it and go, gosh, I don't know that I believe that platform anymore. Without it, I I have nothing. And it was so disconcerting. It was very uh, uncomfortable. And so I get that. We don't want want to hold on to that again, that security. We want to have that meaning. So to embrace the mystery. Now over here, I feel as time goes on, as I learn more, I am, as you said, enjoy. Well, let me go back up to your quote, enjoying not knowing. Am I enjoying it? I don't know, I might think about that one day and I might have enjoyed it, but I'm at least more secure to, to embrace it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, one of the kind of the biggest surprises that happened to me with my uh, uh, preference is this half a beard. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Are we doing audio or are we doing video? We're doing we're doing both. We're doing both. So, but for those who are listening, so if you don't know, of course you can type it in. Dan in in its in its uh, well to to spell it a r i e l y, uh, and if you look, he's got half a beard. It's not just a fashion statement. <laughs> so go ahead. And and this half a beard, you know, I was I was injured many many years ago, yeah. and I shaved for many many years, 
And then when I went on these first month-long hikes, yeah. I, I emerged with a half a beard because uh, most of my body is covered with scars, 70%, but including half of my face. So it's not exactly symmetrical, but it's sort of symmetrical. And I emerged with this uh, half a beard, and I thought I really didn't like it. I didn't like it, and I thought I'll take it off in a few weeks, but I thought I'll keep it as a souvenir from the hike. You know, It took me a month of hiking to, to grow it. I'll keep it for a few weeks. And the first surprising thing that happened was that a few people wrote me and thanked me for the half a beard. And why did they thank me for the half a beard? These were people who were struggling with their own injuries. Mm-hmm. They felt that they were trying to hide something. Mm-hmm. And they thought I was doing it on purpose to say, look how much I don't care. Uh, I corrected. Some of them I didn't correct other people. But I said, okay, if this, if this half a beard helps somebody, let me, let me keep it for a bit longer. But, but the real surprising thing happened about four months down the line. And four months down the line, I all, all of a sudden felt that my relation to my scars and my deformities have changed. So I have lots of scars. I have lots of issues. I have lots of things wrong with me, like they don't look normal, they don't behave normal, that don't feel normal. And I felt that I stopped looking at me and my scars and I started thinking of it as a part of the story of my life, maybe how other people look at tattoos. Not exactly, it's still, I have yeah. pain and so on, but you know, a little bit closer to tattoos than, than burns. And I started thinking about you know, what, what happened. Like, why, why now? I've been carrying these burns for a very long time. Why, why now? Why do I feel different? And I think it's all about shaving. So when somebody like you shave, you shave. When somebody like me shave, I start with smooth one cheek and stubble on the other cheek. And the process of shaving is also the process of hiding my lack of symmetry. Hmm. I did the same thing that those people said. And, and I think that basically giving up and saying, this is me with all the lack of symmetry and so on, and it's a very visible thing, um, was incredibly healing. Because all of a sudden, I, I basically, every day, without thinking about it, I, I, I hid my lack of symmetry. I would start the day with less symmetrical, smooth and stubble. I would finish the shaving with smooth and smooth. And giving up on, on that idea and, and self-acceptance was incredibly healing. Now, why, why am I uh, bringing this up now? Because there was nothing in my arsenal of predicting my own preferences that told me that not shaving for four months would would have an improvement. Mm -hmm. I could certainly tell you what day one would look like. It would not be fun. People would ask questions. Kids would laugh. People would point. But but this process of we get used to self-acceptance and so on, I have zero intuition about it. There's not, I can't, I can't tell you uh, where, where does it fit. And, and that's actually part of the reason why I think social science is so great, is to analyze some of those things and say, hey, here's one hint of perhaps a recipe for, for a better life. See if you want to, to adopt that. Yeah. But, but you know, we, we usually think that we understand our preferences. Mm-hmm. Here I am, a social scientist, and I did something that was counterproductive for many, many years. You get me to thinking, the, again, the need to justify. So if I have a, so I'm allowed to have a preference. 
I'm allowed. I can try wines and decide that I like red wine. I can try coffee or tea or whatever and decide what beverage I like. I can decide what makes sense to me, where I want to live, how I want to work, what I want to do with my finances, where I want to, and all these things and say, this is a preference and I can have a reason. Obviously, there's got to be some reasoning. It's not just a gamble or throwing a dart at a board. But then I there's that cultural need to justify it. I have to tell you why convincingly with certainty, I have decided this is best as opposed to, again, these, this is why you're on the show, Dan, because there's been, as I've evolved in my own life, I've realized I'm, for one, I'm, I'm kind of tired of justifying it, even to myself. I don't know. I just like red wine. That's it. I don't like beer. I've tried to for so many years. And uh, yeah, you, are you going to hang up on me now? No. Um, and I don't, I just don't, I don't know. Strike why. one. No. Strike one. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll get yeah. into some topic. No, but, but literally, yeah, the, the, we have, it, can we have a preference? And then that need to justify it yeah. is again, probably human nature, but I don't, well, yeah, that's what you're saying. Is it serving us well? It is, it is to some degree, if okay. the environment was stable and if we were stable and if we were not that many options and we made a reasonably good choice in the beginning, but <laughs> if those don't hold, yeah. If if we change or the environment change or the option change or there are too many in the beginning. So one of the things I do when I uh, when, when companies call me um, is to usually ask them the question, what if people don't know how to do the thing that you want them to do? So imagine it's a fintech company. And I would say, what if people don't know how to use their money to maximize their happiness? Or imagine it's a meditation app. And I said, you know, what if people don't know how to sleep well? Mm-hmm. Or uh, what if people don't know how to have a romantic relationship without fighting? Or, you know, don't know how to have a good romantic relationship? Or what if people don't know how to raise kids? Or what? Like, by the way, if you do it for almost everything, just ask this question, you would realize, yes. It's actually quite true. Mm-hmm. We we often we often provide services to people like Amazon. Amazon assumes basically you know what you want and will fulfill it for you in an amazingly quick, efficient uh, way. But it's assuming that you know what you want. Mm-hmm. What if people don't know what books would would be the most important for them? What if people don't know what movies will have the biggest impact on them? What if people don't know what vacations would actually recharge them? And the truth is that every time you ask this question and you say, what if? Yeah. I, I assure you, you'll say, in fact, I think people don't know. I mean, we're, we're amateurs. It's unbelievable. We're kind of amateur in everything. We, we pretend we're experts. We pretend we have opinions about how to raise our kids and how to have a romantic relationship and how to spend our money and so on. We pretend all of these things. But if you ask the question of, do we really know? And where would we really get that knowledge? And, and so on. You realize that it's, 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 it's fake. It's a, it's a fiction. It's a, it's a fi- fictional knowledge um, that, that we're based on. Now, should we explore all of this all the time? No, it will be exhausting and impossible. Exactly, exactly. But should we from time to time revisit some important assumptions? 
The answer is yes. Yeah. Even with the hiding, that's where you got me thinking on the hiding, talking about your beard, hiding the reality that we we as a culture want to, and again, and I'll, I'll always own it individually, have times where we want to hide the uncertainty. I want to hide the unknown. I want to, my ignorance. There's so many things. I think again, as time goes on, there are a few things I feel like I know more about. I understand even more. And there's a lot more though that I feel so ignorant on. And again, that culture, I see it with my kids, the cultural pressure to be in the know about everything and have an opinion that is justified and that you will stand behind. And, and back to what you said, one, if you take everything that's out there, just look at one page of any media source today to look there and to think I have to have enough understanding to have a justified opinion. It's exhausting. I, I just, I'd have no time for anything else in my life. So there's got to be some things where I go, you know what, guys, there's a lot of things I care about. There's a lot of things I know about, but there's half that page or three fourths of it. I just don't know. I don't have time to, I can either, I can either work and pay for the mortgage or I can spend that. We'd be homeless, but I'm going to know more about the opinions. It's impossible, but we want to hide that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and what you said earlier is that we look at it as people who are not knowledgeable or yeah. flip-flop or all kinds of things like that. Exactly. Not, not serious people. But yeah. here's a question. When do you think in modern life do people catch themselves and question their way of living on whether this has served them well or not? Only only when it's acutely bad, That's I would think. Exactly right. So so the mostly when people get a terminal illness diagnosis, yeah. that's when people basically um, get an opportunity. Not everybody does that, mm-hmm. but they get an opportunity to examine all aspects of their life and to see where they're handling it correctly or not correctly. And I talked to quite a few palliative care experts. Mm-hmm. And what they say is that on average, between the time that people have a terminal illness diagnosis and end of life is about five years in the US. Right? Most people don't die in car accidents. They die from prolonged diseases. Mm-hmm. So there's five years. And the question I asked them is, imagine somebody is diagnosed with terminal illness, that person comes to our care and we help them reconfigure their life. Relationship, work, uh, legacy, completing tasks. We, we, we help them. And then five years later, they pass away. And then imagine that half an hour later, we, we wake them up. Okay. Obviously we can't, but imagine we wake them up and we say, is there a chapter in your life like what is the chapter of your life that you would like to repeat do you want early childhood do you want high school do you want college do you want how many of them that's what I asked the palliative care experts but if we do everything right mm-hmm. in these five years how many of them will pick the last chapter of life hmm. and they say that the majority would wow now, that's amazing, right? Because no, nobody's happy to die. Nobody wants the last three weeks of life. But it means that the opportunity given to us by this timeline of saying you were just diagnosed with a terminal illness, 
Let's use that as a time that you want to, you don't have time to waste. Don't pretend the end is not visible. Let's really think carefully. Okay. That's what the exercise is about. The exercise is about let's think carefully mm-hmm. about what it is that you're doing in life and what from this do you want to keep on doing and what kind of things do you want to change. Now, I wish people could do it without a diagnosis of a terminal illness. But the fact that people can say this is the, this could be like the you know I, nobody died and woke up and said that but you know the fact that the palliative care experts say that this could be uh, the best chapter in people's lives tell you something about the other chapters mm-hmm. it tells you that that a lot of the things we do in the other chapters are not serving us that well because if if the rest of the chapters were amazing uh, they would be preferred but it means that in all of these other chapters, we're doing things that are not maximizing our quality of life. And in this last chapter that includes pain and illness and, and eventually death could be better because we could redirect people to pay attention to the things that really matter. We could direct people to relationship. We could direct people to legacy. We yeah. could direct people to feeling uh, loved. There's all, all kinds of things we could do that make that last chapter uh, very meaningful. So, so I think one way to, to take this story about end of life is to say that you know, we, we don't want people to re-examine their life every day, maybe not even every year, but maybe every time you hit a five-year mark, 40, 45, 50, uh, maybe we should simulate the, the end of life, uh, the, the terminal illness diagnosis. Yeah. And, and say, if I now got a terminal illness diagnosis, uh, what would I do differently? Okay, two things. One, um, I want to pull out, as of this recording, it was probably six, seven months ago, we had Dr. Jordan Grummet on the show. And he wrote a book called Taking Stock. He was a palliative care doctor. And the book, Dan, was on what he experienced with people when they were given that end-of-life diagnosis and that all of a sudden they had, it was like uh, glasses on that were possibility glasses. They only wanted to look at what's possible. And what he surmised out there, they left their self-protective lives. Up to that point, it was self-protection and they left that because it's imminent. You're going to die. Here's the date or you know the, the expectation. And you're showcasing that same thing. I did not know of that study. And so bringing back to beliefs, that's what, that's what is so profound to me that my beliefs are on self-protection. And it makes me think of, you know, here we are again, as of this recording, we're ending the net, the end of 2023. And at the beginning of the year, everybody's going to do their new year's resolution, set their goals. And what you've got me thinking on here is I'm going to go set my goals. So for this next year, I'm going to go and look at what do I want to do? I'm looking forward. What do I want to do? What do I want to achieve? Well, all of it, is based on my current beliefs. What if those are wrong? Well, then my goals are wrong. Would, it, would I not be better served? Not Nothing against goals, but to first sit down and go, how about if this time I re-examine my beliefs? Yeah. Then do the goals. That's right. And, and examine your beliefs in different aspects of life. And maybe everything would be too much, mm-hmm. but uh, some of it would be very useful. You know, on the aspect of certainty, 
back to a religious context, or at least just from a source in the Bible, uh, we have Th- Thomas, Doubting Thomas. If somebody doesn't know that story, that's a famous story of the Bible. And and Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples, is what, what the story goes. And he, at the end of Jesus' life, is saying, I believe, but help my unbelief. And he expresses, so this is Jesus' disciple expressing his unbelief. And yet I grew up, not to just pick on a church, but just for an analogy, I grew up in a Christian church where it was based on certainty. We are certain of this. So I'm supposed to be better than Jesus' disciple, who if I believe that was with him in the flesh and he expressed still unbelief. But today over here, far removed from at least the life on earth of Jesus that we read about, I'm supposed to have certainty. I mean, it is called faith. And again, why you've got, just got me continually come back to why are we so scared of uncertainty of the so, mystery of not knowing? So, so, you know, the, think about the things that are social taboos. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of time, those are things that we don't want people to think about. Take, take for example, suicide. Um, you know, I was I was very badly injured, and for many years I thought that I would have bet- been better off dead during that injury rather than uh, the, the prolonged suffering that that follow. <laughs> for maybe thirty years I thought so. Then I changed my mind and I said, okay, it's a good deal, I'm alive. Yeah. But for a long time I thought it was um, would have been better. You know, for me death is. Neutral, it's not good nor bad. And I had so much pain that I thought the upside was not was not worth it until just a few years ago. And, you know, and I even thought about, you know, if my kids uh, were burned this way, would I want them to live or not? And my conclusion was no. And <laughs> uh, treatment has gone better. A few other things. But but in general, you get you get the point. Yes. Um and and society and and lots of people because because I was badly injured and because I write about it, lots of people with very difficult injuries uh, call me and uh, want to talk about their own injuries, how to find happiness, uh, and what what to do. Because when you get injured, it's very clear what you've lost. It's completely unclear what you'll gain. Right again, like you know, imagine somebody. It it feels like everything is gone, and it's very hard to see. Where life would take you? What's what's the path that would that would bring some uh, joy back into into life? Um, so, so this this is a very um, very difficult question, and the and the issue is why is society so much against suicide? You know, the, the few societies are allowing that, but in general, we have. Lots of very very negative feelings about society, and and we know that especially with teenagers, it's catching, mm-hmm. right? One one kid commits suicide. Sadly, it it creates the possibility that, and and I think it's an example where society is saying, we so much don't want you to think about that, right? It's is is life worth living or not? We we so much don't want you to think about this that we're going to make it taboo mm-hmm. to even think about that. I think divorce used to be like this. Yeah. Right? I I know that um, some of my uh, divorce friends uh, tell me that um, uh, f- 
their friends that are still in couples don't want them to <laughs> to join the dinner parties because they're afraid that their pure existence in that dinner party would get other people to think about you know maybe ah, no sure that this divorce person is having a fun maybe I should consider it as well so there are some things that society so so there are pressures that are there are cognitive pressures mm-hmm. right we don't want to think so much there's pressures of convenience so you know I've designed my life with the feelings that this is what right. I eat and this is what I feel but there's also social pressures that say you There are some things we don't want you even to to consider there are some things we don't want you even to to consider okay along with that we've talked so much about protection and you have me thinking about how much of belief is just around self-protection that's got to be with the other and the other primary things pillar of this issue is we want to belong. We want to belong. So if the issue is out there, I want to belong. I'm going to tend to go with my peers, with the, my loved ones, or, or rebel against that either way, which I would say either both are unhealthy, both are lacking a consideration from so, me. So absolutely. So um, I'll give one example for this. So as we said, the path of least belief have stress, cognitive, personality, and social. Mm-hmm. So now we're in the social realm, the thing that seals the deal on misbelief. And one particularly interesting phenomena uh, is called Shibolet. Okay. And uh, Shibolet is a story from the Bible about two tribes that had a very difficult war. And then they settled on two sides of the river. But they would walk around and they would meet people and they would want to know, are they from our tribe or from the other tribe? And these two tribes pronounced the word Shibolet in a slightly different way. A Shibolet is a plant in Hebrew, and one of them pronounced it Shibolet, and one of them pronounced it Sibolet. Okay. So I would meet you, and I would say, how do you call this plant? And if you gave the name that I give it, We would hug and everything would be fine. If you gave it the wrong name of the other tribes, I would chase you away or try to kill you. Right. Now, we are using this term to signal identity. I'm asking you, what is the name of this plant? But I don't care about the name of the plant. I'm asking you to tell me which tribe you belong to. Right. And there's a lot of speech these days that it's actually not about the truth. It's about Chibolet. Mm-hmm. So, so think, think about politicians, but also think about all kinds of things in social media. And by the way, right and left, it's not, not that one side has this. Think about all kinds of extreme crazy things that people are saying. And ask the question of whether when they say it initially, they really mean it, or is it a signaling of their identity? Look what a liberal I am. I am no longer willing to go into a gender-designated bathroom. Or look what a wonderful conservative I am. I think that all, whatever are, should be expelled out of the, out of the country. So people, people are, are proclaiming very, very strong things. Um, and I And it's very confusing to know when do they really mean the facts mm-hmm. and when are they 
signaling identity. Um, think about things like climate, uh, things about things like was the elections in the U.S. stolen or not. Uh, think about FDA pro I mean you just just name it and and you could see that a lot of it it's very confusing it's very confusing if people are actually having a conversation about facts or they're having a conversation about look at me and my identity yeah yeah belonging yeah it's it's so huge I had not come to that before we recorded here I mean you the tight or the tagline of your book Dan, Again, the book's called Misbelief. Here's the tagline, folks. What makes rational people believe irrational things? And it really just has gotten me as I continue to read to question, can any of us really claim to be rational? Would that not help if we all just said we are by proxy as humans, not rational? And and I, I, I wrote a minute ago as you're talking about Am I rational? No, I'm ma- I'm mainly emotional. I'm emotional and I want to be I want to feel comfortable, I want to feel safe. That by proxy makes me somewhat at least irrational. So if I took that stance, wouldn't it serve me better? Yeah. So so first of all, you know, all my other work is showing about how people are irrational in all yes. kinds of ways and I I use this this tagline to basically signal that um, these are wonderful people. You know, one of the things that worry me is that we would look at people who are misbelievers, whether they, you know, become extreme or just lose their belief slightly, and and we will judge them as lesser people. Yeah. Uh, like the people who don't believe like us. Oh, you know, something is broken in that. If you think about the huge divide we had uh, over abortions. Mm-hmm. Right. Each side thought that the other side is somehow broken, that something in their reasoning just just doesn't work. Um, and and I think that it's a very unhealthy perspective to belittle the other side. First of all, we have to live together. We're one country with lots of people with different opinions, and we have to come to some agreement and compromises and so on. And it's just practically um, belittling the people that you have to collaborate with is not is not a good strategy, but it's also not fair. Mm-mm. You know, when when I look at people who go down the funnel of misbelief, these are smart, caring, wonderful people. They just so happen to hit a, a stretch of stress, and they just happen to find solace in a misbelief. It was a it it comes as a real response for a real need not not the one i would choose for them but but you can see why it plugs the hole right if people feel and so on so we need to understand this this mechanism and you know this is about misbelief and a lot of it is about but but it's the process of beliefs more generally and and we tend to look at people with different beliefs than other and than ours and say you know what color is the sky in your world? How can it be? Like yep. we all, with, with, with extreme misbelievers, you know, we all have people in our families that five years ago we thought we saw the world at the same time and now we look at them and we say, I don't think we ever had anything in common. No, it's not true. We had a lot in common and they had some difficult life circumstances with stress and YouTube, 
and then and then it went down down the rabbit hole and it fulfills a real need it's like an autoimmune disease in 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 a way but just just of the of of the mind and they got there and and unless we have empathy and unless we understand you know we too could have been there mm-hmm. it's not like oh they're them and me and i could have never adopt you know your your journey on questioning now is is very important because now you're saying i could have landed with different ideas mm-hmm. and preferences i could have landed on different beliefs the fact that i landed on those might say something more about the random path that my life took than something that is actually you know written in stone or uh, written in my genetic code well that it's an interesting topic abortion because i i look at that one and i'm not going to go down that rabbit hole here but i i do feel like you know can we can you have some respect for each other that both sides very much value life they value life they're fighting for for lies and and they're not that dissimilar. I feel like so often there's probably more alignment at the core than there is opposition. And yet we just focus on the polarization in a different perception, which is part of, you talked about that in part of your story, right at the beginning of the book that you are a target of, and the word you used in there, I, I know you use misinformation, but you also said a, a target of misinterpretation. And that one, Dan, I continue to come back to over and over and over that the objective reality can happen, yeah. that we perceive different and and maybe rightly so. We have a different experience. We have a different filter. We de- have a different perspective and we're off the right or wrong, black and white. Again, there is a different interpretation in which one is true. When we, it feels like when we're going to get in trouble, when we showcase our interpretation as truth and fact and quote, you know, reality and not be able to hold it in union with someone else's fair interpretation. So so my definition of a misbelief mm-hmm. is a belief in something in the world that is ain't so, plus taking that belief as a central tendency in our lives, a, a perspective from which we view other things. So, okay. You know, if you said, oh, you know, I'm dating somebody who believes the earth is flat, you know, uh, their belief in the earth is flat is not going to change the shape of the earth. It's not such a big deal. But the reality is that if somebody truly believed the earth is flat, they believe the NASA is lying to them. Mm-hmm. The U.S. government is lying to them. And every pilot knows the truth, but they're not telling it. And every government is on it. And all space program. I mean, they just... And now... It's not just a belief, it's a perspective. And now you say, where else? Where else is it, is it, is it happening? What, what else is, is going on? So, you know, the moment you can get people to stop believing in something 100% and you take them down to 95, now the possibility that they are wrong creeps in and they're no longer holding it as a central tendency in their lives. Hmm. Because I can, I can believe in something very strongly. You know, my God is the only God and all other people are infidels and they should die. Oh, you know, something like that. Right. The moment you say, it looks to me like my God is the right one and the other one are made up, but I'm not so sure. Now you're not going to go on a killing spree. I mean, there's a, there's a difference. You're going to proclaim your faith, your decided faith. 
but I judge. Yeah. Yeah. So the moment, and, and it's interesting, right? Because it's, it's the moment you move from this 100% mm-hmm. to, to a lower percentage. It doesn't have to be a big, a big road. It's not like you say, I'm moving from 100% to 50-50. No, you can just move a little bit. It's the moment you're not certain. Yeah. And you're, you're adding the possibility that you might be wrong. That's kind of a, an unbelievable improvement for humanity. That, that's what I'm going to come back to that word of wisdom and trust. I now, when I hear, and again, this is new for me because I grew up as a very certain individual, Dan. That was, I based my life, I came from, again, from a, a pretty staunch religious background that I accepted and embraced. And I wanted that. What What was your religious background? Christian. It, it just what, I, what kind? Oh gosh, it, it it went back. I went from Southern Baptist to uh, to uh, like Assembly of God, a charismatic. So I kind of did the gamut, but it was still within the certainties of the absolute truths from the Bible that we you know, translated and claimed. And now today, finding you know again back into the, the the mystery and and what I find now is if somebody claims certainty in. Most anything, I'm not going to say everything, but most anything, 99% of things, I lose trust because I don't even believe they are certain because I look back on myself and if you had asked me, you know, are you really that question, you know, are, do you really mean it? This is what you said, Dan. Do you really mean it? Or are you just signaling what your identity is? I wouldn't have been, that would have scared me to death. I think back then, or would it angered me? I would have called you bad names or something like that. But now I'm looking at it going, oh my gosh, to claim certainty. I want everybody on both sides, again, come back to, okay, to the best that I can figure out so far, this is where I have decided to put my faith. I, 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 yeah. I still don't have a better terminology than that. So so one of the things I really dislike is when the students and campuses said, from my privileged perspective, I really hate that expression, but- right. If you, if you think seriously about the funnel of misbelief, uh, I'm hoping that you are leading a life with very little stress uh. and time for openness and reconsidering things. And when, when people come and have very strong opinions, um, you know, you, it, one of the things you want to do is to understand that it comes from a need. Yeah, that the needs is again like like our sailors, sailors, right? In in the deep sea, they need a story, and and so on. And and it's it's not just about the people; it's about life circumstances. And by the way, one of the biggest antidotes for stress is resilience. Mm. Now, think about where we are as a society in terms of resilience. We're not doing so well. No, we're not. Uh, we're not doing so well with extended families. We're not doing so well with friendships. Uh, we're certainly not doing very well on, on, social, on social media. Uh, income inequality is um, decreasing resilience. Right? Just think about your neighborhood and ask yourself, what are the chances that you'll go to borrow a cup of rice from somebody? As income inequality increases, the odds of relying on other people for help is, is, getting, is getting lower. So mm-hmm. we, the, the thing that 
that helps us to to fight uh, this need for okay, I need an answer now, and I need um, it's it's you know it's getting harder and harder to get to it. Mm-hmm. And when when I look at the people who've you know adopted these crazy beliefs about me, there was one there was one story that they said that I'm. Uh, I, I'm trying to also reduce the population by slowing down ambulances. Yeah, I, I read that story. <laughs> but. So, you know, and, and then uh, every time that ambulance is slowing down, they bring it back and say, oh, you see, Dan, Dan's plan is working. Um, <clears throat> so, so the, again, I don't think it's right to 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 just blame the people. I think... Uh, first of all, it, it doesn't help us come up with solutions, uh, but it's also not um, not having enough respect for their environment and the pressures that they're experiencing. Right? You've said repeatedly there's pressure, right. there's, there's pressure for protection that that comes to have these things. That it's tough to re-examine our beliefs. There's a a lot of different reasons to get us to decide, decide now, and don't change it. Um, these are these are real forces, yeah. and and it's that's why that's why when we talked about the end of life, you need something huge. I mean, some some people need something huge like a, a terminal diagnosis to say, oh, let me now I have to really rethink about. It. But on every Tuesday, it's just it's just a tough tough exercise. So it's it's wonderful that you're doing it. But but I think you you, you you like one thing that you might want to think about is how do you take this process that you're trying to go through yourself? How do you make it bite size so sure. that uh, people can uh, tackle tackle it piece by piece uh, with the realization that you know taking a big chunk of time uh, to do the full processes might be might right. be too much, but. Picking picking something and examining it, you know, every three months might be might be a better a better approach. Well, again, I'm, my my uh, hope, the hope that I'm feeling, Dan is, uh, and I'm going to quote something out of your book here, is that we can all, and again, it's got to be with some confidence. It's got to we've got to if, you, if you're struggling with confidence, if you're struggling with <clears throat> humility, this is going to be hard. But if you can say, if you can try to state that you have some confidence, state some humility, and just understand that, and this is a, a definition out of your book on misbelief. It's a distorted lens. So we have stresses in our life. We all do. That stress distorts our lens. I'm going to paraphrase your your quote. It distorts the lens through which we begin to number one. This is again right out of Dan's book. It's page fifteen. If you want to go there. It's how, how we view the world, how we reason about the world, back to the story that you've been talking to us about, and then how we describe the world to others. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, Dan, this has been, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack one piece on this is again, right out of your book. You go further. You say it's about how we form beliefs, solidify them, defend them, and spread them. Okay. So I'm going to take that right there. Dan, I, I have nine kids. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But I have raised them. I have with good intent and with what I, the best love that I knew how tried to give them good values and morals and ethics. And yet, because I'm human, I have stress. 
I have given them my view of the world, my reason of the world. I've described the world to them through my distorted lens. Mm -hmm. I now with my younger kids, I can shift that with my older kids. I've had to come back and go, guys, I just need you to know that you were programmed through my distorted lens. Now, I didn't give them that. I, I get to go to them now, Dan. I'll give them this yeah, book yeah. for Christmas uh, and say, and and I have, I've skewed the way that you view the world. And some of my kids have accepted some of that. Some of them have rebelled against it some way, somewhat. Either way, I'd say that neither of those are healthy. I need you to, I want to give you permission to take these things and consider them for yourself without my distorted lens and try to understand that you if you don't watch your stresses are going to have a distorted lens and that's where we are going to have misbelief. And this is the hope in understanding this to not. Yes. That's, that's very beautiful. And, and by the way, is it like, if you want to be a social scientist, you have like your whole experimental group just there at home. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that is fair. Uh, well, Dan, you know, this is such a huge topic. I feel like it's so the reason we're doing this series is there's so much freedom to be had from it. Because when I look at it, I feel like my misbelief has and is, and I'm going to try to continue rooting out where is it, but it has and is, yeah. it confines me. It's yeah. a, it's a prison. It limits me. It gives me anger. It gives me distrust. It's not helping me. It's not helping anyone else, even though I do want to know what's best for myself and other people. And I'm going to research and find evidence and then say, okay, today, to the best that I can figure out, I'm going to make this choice. But then tomorrow or three months from now, or at the end of the year, I'm going to go and go, is that, how's it going? Yep. Is it serving me? That's the hope of the book. Thank you. Uh, for being with us. And folks, yeah, again, the name of the book, which I just so uh, strongly recommend that you check out is Misbelief, What Makes Rational People Believe Irrational Things. Take it with confidence and humility and uh, go tell us what you thought about this show, what you gleaned from this show. Leave us a, a rating or a review on Spotify and Apple and to say, this is what I got out of the show with Dan. And you can see our show here on YouTube, any of the social media. You can find me at Kevin Miller, CO. And if you want to learn more about your own inner drive, check out my book, What Drives You on Amazon. And until next time, stay driven. Yeah.